I'm Gil Adamit. And I'm Tom Winty. And you're listening to Interacting Weekly, the regular podcast which condenses all the week's science-related news and brings it to an MP3 file near you. This week's newspapers were also read by Nigel Fullerton and Jen Winty. And together we will be bringing you the week's most important stories, despite the natural shyness, diffidence and tendencies towards introversion. That in the past have seen us described as the team who put the erm in wormhole, the angst in angstrom and the uncertainty in Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. But it is with conviction that we bring you the biggest story of the week. A truly massive story. Which, ironically enough, concerns the discovery of the world's tiniest chameleon. Scientists found the miniature reptile on the island of Nozihara, just off the coast of Madagascar. At 29 millimetres long, this innermost specimen in the reptilian babushka doll is roughly the size of insects eaten by its larger cousins. The Times website shows a photograph of the chameleon perching comfortably on the head of a matchstick, arguably not the safest place for a small animal to be hiding. Excuse me, do you have a light? Yes, of course. There you go. Hey, that's not a flame, that's just a tiny red chameleon. That's all right, this match is just a sound effect. The Daily Mail, however, displayed a greater level of safety consciousness by showing the picture of the tiny chameleon perched on the tip of a human finger. At least we're presuming that's what it is. It might well be a regular chameleon perched on the tip of a giant human finger. You can't be too careful. Some of you will remember the excitement generated a few months ago when a team of biologists announced they had discovered the world's smallest frog. Only for a rival group to find an even smaller frog a matter of weeks later. You have to wonder if the team from Madagascar are in for a really terrible disappointment in a few weeks' time. Excuse me, do you have a light? Yes, of course. There you go. Thanks. Hey, what's that on your finger? Oh, that's my pet chameleon. Wow, it's tiny. I think that's small. Wait till you see the one perched on its finger. This search for tiny animals may well be biology's way of claiming some of the limelight back from physics. In recent years, of course, much media attention has been focused on the LHC in CERN, which epitomises the search for the very small and very well hidden. It's amusing to speculate as to whether the two disciplines might ever benefit from each other's expertise. Look, what's that unusual peak at 125 giga electron volts? Oh my god, could it be? Have we, have we found the Higgs boson? Sorry, sorry about that. I'm afraid that's one of our chameleons. Really tiny little thing. Don't know how it got away. Sorry to have troubled you. The world's attention is so engaged by the search for the Higgs boson that CERN can make it to the headlines even when there are no new discoveries to announce. That's true. This week, those in charge of the Large Hadron Collider have announced that they will be raising the energy of particle collisions from 7 trillion electron volts, or TeV, to 8 trillion electron volts later this year. As impressive as this may be to the physics community, this sort of announcement is roughly equivalent to letting the rest of the family know when you're about to use a faulty plug socket. OK, I'm about to plug in the LHC. Hold on, let me just save my progress on Call of Duty 4. OK, go for it. Did it break down again? Yes, but on the plus side, I think we can get another press release out of this. In the all-singing, all-dancing Las Vegas burlesque show that is the natural sciences, 
Physicists are the classiest of strippers. Your attention is kept by the little they have on display, but you paid for your ticket in the hope of seeing what is being kept concealed. Biologists, however, are the raunchier performers. Fans and tassels cast aside in the interest of honesty and open access? They are upfront about their discoveries, often making headlines by simply revealing the extremes of life on Earth. As was the case this week, for example, with news stories covering discoveries ranging from the world's tiniest chameleon to the world's oldest fossil. In this year of one's dime, Jubilee. No, 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 no. We did this joke last week. It was timely then, but now it's old and tired and overexposed. The, the Queen? No, the joke. Nigel, did you let the Queen back into this week's script? Sorry. Well, pay more attention next time. She'll go anywhere for a public appearance. Now, where were we? The world's oldest fossil. Right, go ahead. It seems that the oldest surviving record of life on our planet may have been found in a sample of Namibian limestone dating back over 700 million years. All the evidence collected up till now dates life on Earth to almost a hundred million years later, surely making the fossil, Otavia Antiqua, one of the loneliest organisms in the planet's history. Dr Tony Prave of St Andrews University characterised the animal as a primitive sort of sponge, saying... It has the various attributes you can attribute to a sponge. Although he at no point specified what those attributes were. Hi, I'm a keen salsa dancer, have a good sense of humour, support Tottenham Hotspur on weekends and still live with my parents. Give me a call. In a slightly disappointing parallel to the Olympic motto Faster! Higher! Stronger! The big biological stories of the week are following the pattern Smaller! Older! Wheatier! Th- hold on. Wheatier? Yes. As in, more wheaty. No, no. Wheatier. As in the diminutive songbird Ananthi Ananthi, also known as the Northern Wheat Ear. Oh, I see. And why have they been in the news? According to a new report, it appears that these tiny birds travel over 30,000 kilometres on their annual migrations, flying back and forth between sub-Saharan Africa and the Arctic tundra. It turns out that if you scale for body size, this is one of the longest migration journeys of any known bird. And how do we know all this? Well, researchers fitted 46 of these birds with satellite tracking devices, tiny harnesses, which weighed about 1.4 grams each. And how much did the birds weigh? Uh, about 25 grams. So when you scale for body size... To human size? Yes. That comes to about 5 kilograms worth of tracker, which would be like running three full laps of Jupiter in the space of a bank holiday weekend after you drunk nine extra pints to weigh you down. Uh, it's a little difficult for me to get my head around that one. Well, if it makes it easier... Five kilograms is also, coincidentally enough, exactly one of the options they've definitely excluded for the mass of the Higgs boson. Wow, that's a pretty impressive bird. Well, Dr Heiko Schmaljohan of the Institute of Avian Research in Wilhelmshaven, Germany, is certainly very keen to stand up for them. This is the longest recorded migration for a songbird, as far as we know. If the planet was larger, they would probably migrate even further. Surely a lot of things would be different if the planet was larger. I suppose so. Small chameleons would seem even smaller, for one thing. True. Life might have begun even earlier. It's possible. And I'd be standing way over here. Yes, all right, I get your point. I mean, I understand he feels protective about his birds, but come on. We wouldn't take that sort of excuse from an athletics coach. So what Darren here does is he runs one of the fastest marathons, scale for body size, of anyone else I know. I see. But you know, if things were different, he could run even faster. What do you mean? I mean, if the marathon was shorter, for instance, he could run it in 3 hours 45. If he got really short, he could do it in an hour 20. And what if the planet were bigger? Well, then we'd probably enter him into the half marathon instead.
Sadly, however, the northern wheatear may have to learn to be content with the planet it's got. As may we all. American scientists have claimed this week that NASA is planning to propose irrational and unjustified budget cuts on space projects aimed at exploring other planets. If the American Space Agency does indeed decide to reorganise its priorities, then the fate of interplanetary travel may rest in the hands of Europe. This week, in fact, the European Space Agency, also known as ESA, launched the Vega rocket, its first ever spacecraft capable of sending satellites into the cosmos. Vega will grant Europeans more independence when it comes to scheduling their own space projects, as they will no longer have to rely on Russian or American vehicles. The first passenger Vega took up this week was Laris, a satellite capable of testing various aspects of Einstein's general theory of relativity. The Vega rocket set ESA back over a billion euros, nearly 60% of which was provided by Italy. Having a fully paid-for escape route into space must have seemed like an incredibly appealing prospect to certain members of the Italian government. One wonders how much input certain individuals in particular had into the rocket's design process. So this rocket will go fast? Oh yes, Mr. Palascoli. Very fast indeed. Excellent. The girls, they like it when I go fast, especially on re-entry. Right. And uh, what is this? Um, that's a uh, retroreflector, Mr. Berlusconi. Um, that will allow us to collect very accurate data to see whether or not Einstein's theory of relativity is correct. That one is the theory with the twin paradox, yes? Um, yes, that's right. I have always found this fantastical. The idea that I take one twin with me into outer space, and when I come back, her sister is much, much older. Maybe she is, I don't know, 18 already. This is a very timely week for European astronomers to be in the news, as Sunday, February 19th, marks 539 years to the birth of Nicolaus Copernicus. Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday, Copernicus! Thank you. Yes, happy birthday. Go on, blow out the candles! Hold on, I haven't lit them all yet. Ah, it's a tiny chameleon! It <sighs> doesn't matter anyway. You've put 540 candles on the cake. And I'm only 539. You never get anything right. Typical, isn't it? Why does everything always have to revolve around you? You know, that's a very good question. It's easy enough to stereotype an Italian rocket as a sleek, fast, bright red engineering feat of overcompensation, but other national stereotypes seem more difficult to pin down. Some European countries are writing our jokes for us, though, as Swiss scientists are set to launch a satellite in 2016 which would help clean up space junk in our corner of the solar system. This so-called janitor satellite would track down pieces of debris and drag them out of orbit, hopefully causing them to burn up on re-entry. Hey, what? What did I say? The fact that Italy put up most of the money for the Vega launch is particularly surprising, given that most European space projects are principally financed by France. So one assumes that the French must have had more important things on their mind. Possibly official attention was distracted by new research undertaken at the University of Reims, which has revealed that the quality of champagne is affected by the shape of the glass in which it is served. Traditionally, of course, champagne can be served in a coupe, a flute, a slight trombone. For those of you who, like myself, find it difficult to know which is which, the coupe is the wide, shallow glass, apocryphally modelled after the shape of Marie Antoinette's breasts. And the flute is the thin, deep glass, which is apocryphally modelled after the shape of Berlusconi's rocket. Scientists who have dedicated years to the study of the science of champagne... Uh, uh, excuse me, is this the conference of Nicoletti of the... No, sorry, I'm afraid not. I have dedicated years to the study of the science of champagne, you know. Yes, I can see that. I have written many papers on this subject. Really? Oui, I am frequently to be found in the wine press. Let me show you to the door. 
Uh, yes, it seems that uh, flute-shaped glasses maintain a higher concentration of CO2 in the champagne, but flatter glasses dilute, dilute the, the levels, levels of carbon dioxide in the alcohol. Thank you. After years of research, therefore, experts in the champagne community recommend using what they call an intermediate-shaped drinking vessel. What you or I might refer to as an ordinary wine glass. As always, it seems as though a happy medium is the best possible answer. And then Goldilocks began to cry. <laughs> What's wrong, Goldilocks? said Papa Bear. Well, said Goldilocks, if I use Mama Bear's glass, then the champagne is nearly flat. And if I use your glass, then the bubbles really irritate my nosy. But Baby Bear's wine glass is just right. How did Baby Bear get a wine glass? said Papa Bear. And what are you doing in his bed? As will already be familiar to those of you who downloaded last week's episode... Russian scientists have drilled through the 14-million-year-old ice covering Lake Vostok, one of the largest subglacial lakes on the Antarctic continent. After the breakthrough had been announced, the Russian Minister for Natural Resources presented Vladimir Putin with what he claimed was a sample of water from Lake Vostok, beautifully preserved in a metal and glass case. Compared to some of Putin's other PR stunts, however, this lacks a certain bite. <laughs> So, Prime Minister Putin, we have here your next image-boosting campaign. Excellent. What is it now? Will I be wrestling with giant Siberian bear? Uh, no. Will I be rescuing little Russian peasant girl from burning village? No. Will there be picture of me winning gold medal at next Olympic Games? No. So what is plan? Your Minister for Natural Resources will pass you a beautiful presentation case filled with water. My minister will come over here and he will pass water? Yes. Hmm. I have one question. Yes? If I want water, why do I not just go to vending machine? To make matters worse, it was later revealed by members of the expedition that the water in the presentation case was not, in fact, from Lake Vostok at all, but rather from a point in the shaft far above the lake's surface. I wouldn't have liked to be the team member who gave that story to the press. So, this great scientist, this brave researcher, he leaked this story to the press. It would appear so, Prime Minister. Cha! My scientists, they all leak, and my ministers, they pass water. What sort of country am I running? I mean, what sort of country is Medvedev running? Would you like him to be punished, Prime Minister? Yes, in this country we have a long tradition of sending those who disappoint us to cold, barren wastelands. Do we have anywhere like that where we could send him? Um, uh, what about our research base at Lake Vostok, Prime Minister? Excellent! Send him there! That will teach him not to tell the truth about these, uh, what do you call them? Samples. Russians keep a close eye on any water coming out of Antarctica. It seems as though the rest of the world might benefit from following their example. Data gathered by the Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment Satellite, also known as GRACE, has revealed that between 2003 and 2010, nearly a trillion tonnes of ice had disappeared from the world's glaciers. The Independent helpfully rendered this figure as equivalent to 1,000 cubic miles of ice or enough water to fill Lake Windermere more than 13,000 times. Surely the task of finding that large a quantity of water could safely be entrusted even to the physicists at CERN. OK, I'm plugging in the LHC. Hold on, let me save. Right. Gilad? Gilad? Are you all right? 
What happened? You shouldn't have turned it on when you're knee-deep in water. Am I? Yes, look around you. There must have been a thousand cubic miles of the stuff. Oh, I didn't notice. Right, best of luck finding the Higgs. So, if you happen to spot 13,000 Lake Windermere's flowing down a street near you, please be sure to get in touch with the proper authorities. And whatever you do, don't try to apprehend them yourself. We now come to one of the week's standout examples of fringe science. As physicists in Cambridge announce that they have developed an equation to describe the shape of the perfect ponytail. Now, as you can imagine, this is a story that is very close to my heart. But a fair distance away from your forehead. Yeah, all right. It is presumably only a matter of time before papers start coming out describing a whole range of different hairstyles. The mullet inequalities. The mohawk parabola. The comb-over paradox. All of which seem like thoroughly rewarding fields in the wider discipline of Newtonian dynamics. In all seriousness, though, this ponytail shape equation models the behaviour of a bundle of hair strands when the individual hairs start colliding with each other. An improved understanding of the complex mathematics involved will apparently help animators draw more realistic hair and fur. The new mathematical quantity that is central to these advances has been colloquially referred to as the Rapunzel number. Who says mathematicians are guilty of ivory tower research? In other fairy tale related news, goats brought up in different parts of the world may grow up to develop different regional accents. Baby goats born from the same mother were reared in different social groups and found to possess strikingly dissimilar vocal ranges. This puts an entirely different spin on a well-loved children's classic. And now children, the story of the three billy goats gruff. One little billy goat was young and vivacious. I'm not technically a billy goat, even though I do have a beard on my nosy. One was a randy old goat. Aye, she was 18 when we took off. But the third billy goat was big and strong. Where is this troll I must knock into river? Will be great PR for next election campaign. In other news, a study conducted by scientists at the University of Michigan has revealed that people tend to have an unnaturally positive reaction towards an experience when they know it is about to end. 52 male and female students were each asked to rate their appreciation of five different pieces of chocolate. Some of the volunteers were told when they were about to eat their last one, while others were given no such warning. The group which was told that they were eating their last chocolate gave that final item the highest ranking in more than 66% of cases. From a psychological point of view, this is all very easy to understand. The last chocolate in the box is always going to be tastier. The final boson in the standard model, always more alluring. The smallest chameleon, always the most adorable. And the final glass of champagne, always the most delicious. So on that note, we realise that if we told you that this was the last sketch of the show, that would make you all enjoy it even more than you'd enjoyed everything else that came before it. And that way of artificially increasing your own pleasure felt like the best and fairest way to thank you all for paying such close attention up to this point. So ladies and gentlemen... Boys and girls... This is the very last... Final Conclusive Sketch of the show This week's episode of Interacting Weekly featured Tom Winty, Nigel Fullerton, Jen Winty and Gillard Amit, all of whom performed their own stunts and did their own hair and makeup, with the exception of Tom Winty, who only had to do his own makeup. The show was written by Gillard Amit with contributions from the cast and Ziggy Shafransky and produced by Jen Winty. If you'd like to share your news stories with us, feel free to interact weekly with us on Twitter at Interact Weekly, or track us down in any of the other deserted alleyways of the internet. A new episode of us interacting weekly can be downloaded from our website every Sunday. So until then, have a good week. Hold up. 